Are you there? Can you hear me? Frankie, this is silly. There's nobody out there. I'm just talking in empty space. <sighs> fine. I said fine, I'll do it. Listen up, Wasteland, because I'm here to help you survive. And also because Frankie made me promise, and I don't do that often. Promises are worth about as much as sand in the Wasteland. I'm Sheriff, speaking to you from the last hurrah, a survivor's colony 50 miles west of Montgomery, Alabama. You're welcome here, if you can follow my rules. One, work if you're able. We have a farm to maintain and animals to feed. Two, no funny business. It's that simple. I'm not hard to please, no matter what Frankie tells you. We have a good thing going here at the last hurrah, and we've been lucky. Trip and Eva, reunited, Marge and Mama safe, a gaggle of kids, and even a dog. Bet you haven't seen a friendly one of those out there recently. You've probably noticed that there's not many people left in the world nowadays. That's why I'm trusting this message to find good people willing to work and make a life here at the last hurrah. There's not enough of us left to be cruel anymore. Of course, it's easy to say that, but how do you know that you can trust me? Frankie says I have to talk, and all I have is my story. The more I talk, the more you'll know me. The more you'll trust that I mean what I said about people being welcome here. And just maybe, she'll hear me too. So listener, where do I start? Don't fear the wasteland. An apocalyptic broadcast. So, you probably remember the burning, or whatever you call it. It's hard to forget in a world that still tastes of soot and death. Who knows how much of the population just, poof, went up in flames where they stood or slept, all at the same time all around the globe. Entire cities turned to ash because people burned and burned and burned. My brothers were in the field with Daddy when it happened. Ma was in the house, yelling at me for putting off packing for college. I would be the first in my family with the chance to go. Ma always wanted more for me than a farmer's life, but it's funny how things work out. I remember the screaming, the fire's roar, Daddy yelling for help, and the sky turning black so the whole world burned. I remember how nothing was left of my brothers except bits of bone and ash that stayed under my fingernails for months. Daddy raked them into the dirt and put up crosses where they fell because there wasn't enough left to bury. Couldn't tell one ash pile from the other. Ma cried for days. To be fair, there wasn't much else to do. Daddy drove to town after a couple of days, but all he got was orders to stay put while the government recovered. The little radio in the kitchen didn't tell us much either. To this day, I've never met a person who knows why most of the population went up like a match, and there's probably not enough of us left in the world to figure it out. I don't much buy into the theory that it was the rapture. What I do know is that the world still smells like burnt flesh. Daddy listened to the radio's suggestions and had us hunker down. We saw neither hide nor hair of anyone for a month. The radio broadcasts were fewer and fewer until silence and static became the norm. Our larder got low, and Ma cried more. 
I spent hours staring at my fingers looking for smoke and imagining my skin crawling with flames. I wondered when God would come back for the rest of us. One night, Daddy, Ma, and I sat in the dark kitchen table, silent, listening to the radio buzz. The static had become a comfort, a white noise drowning out the real world where my brothers were gone and the world over. Then the radio spoke, the broadcast signal loud in our small space. Breaking news. A contagion that overtook three survivor camps. An infection passed by biting, with no known cure and no chance to make a vaccine. Stay home, they said. Stay home and hide. May God have mercy on our souls. Daddy cursed and turned the radio off and the message started over again. He unplugged the thing and put it in the basement. I think he was scared of what else it might say. Ma, as was normal now, began to cry. Some weeks later, the virus reached us. Well, it reached the neighbors, and the Hendersons decided to drop in for a visit. We found the couple in the basement, dirty and rabid. Mrs. Henderson fled through the high-up window, how I assumed they originally got in. Mr. Henderson, Mark, as he insisted I call him once, scurried back into the corner. When Ma stepped closer, trying to reason with him, he panicked like a cornered dog and lunged, taking a chunk out of her hand. Daddy put Mr. Henderson down with a hammer, and the wet thunk echoed in the now-silent basement. We clean and wrap Ma's bite, but if the radio had told the truth, it wouldn't do no good. We spotted Mr. Henderson on the property a few times. She even got her hands on a chicken and was tearing it apart with her teeth when Daddy finally got a bullet between her eyes. She went on the burn pile with her husband. <laughs> I sound harsh, don't I? Disrespectful of human life? Welcome to the wasteland. We don't have time for sentiment. Sama would say different, but she isn't here anymore, and the last of my patients left with her. Ma cried even more after the attack, if that was possible. Our meager meals tasted like salt water. After a week, she stopped leaving the bed, and I brought her tea, and she whispered that her dreams were dark, full of howling wolves. She could feel her mind going, and she was scared. She hugged me one last time, waited until I left the room, and hanged herself from the rafters. Daddy found her, tear tracks on her cheeks. I'm ashamed to say we didn't bury her, didn't even cut her down. Daddy shoved food into a duffel, grabbed two rifles and a revolver, and backed his truck down the drive with me silent in the cab. Thinking back on it, we should have buried Ma, but I was still a child at 18, and I knew better than to question Daddy. Years later, I went back, but that's another story. Daddy and I headed out of Mobile and drove east towards Pensacola, where survivors were holding up at the base, according to the scant radio signals we got in the truck. I spent a lot of time silent and alone in my head. Long and very boring story short, we didn't make it to Pensacola. We didn't even make it over the Alabama border. Roadblocks, dead and burning cities with black skies and mobs of crawlers. The nickname for rabid humans that I'd learned from a painted billboard outside of Montgomery that said the city had been overrun. Well, they all turned us north. We found a man with a shanty boat willing to take us up the Mississippi, but upon closer inspection, Daddy decided he didn't trust the man not to rob or drown us. We bunked down in a rest stop for a while after that, eating out of vending machines and reading travel pamphlets to waste time. 
I remember being content despite the circumstances. I spent my days walking around the rest stop on guard against crawlers. Despite Ma and my brothers being dead, the world being over, and spending a good portion of the day hungry because Daddy was stingy with the rations, I was very nearly happy and only slightly guilty about it. To be fair though, it had been three months since I'd ran out of my old lanzapine pills, so maybe I was simply manic. One day, when the vending machines were mostly empty aside from gum and lifesavers, Daddy passed me a travel brochure and told me it was time to move on. Know where your food comes from? The pamphlet asked. Find out with a tour of the Laster Raw Farm, the largest provider of produce in South Alabama. Daddy explained in a few words that we'd make a home at the Laster Raw. Start over, he said. When I asked why we couldn't just go home to Mobile, he didn't answer. I know now it's because living in the past is too hard. It took us two months and three detours because of more blocked roads and a collapsed bridge to reach the last hurrah, but finally we drove under the farm's sign and up a washed-out drive. The farmhouse was two stories tall with a wraparound porch and two barns out back. The roof of the house was covered in solar panels, something I didn't believe even seeing it. Daddy whistled when he saw those panels, said we might just have power here. He parked the truck and I hopped out, and Daddy passed me the 223 from the back rack and took the magnum for himself. I helped Daddy clear out so many places the routine was now habit. I followed him up the porch steps, rifle ready but pointed down. The front door was ajar, which made me nervous. Inside, the living room had a large couch and lots of pretty artwork on the walls. The area was clean under all the dust. No one had been there in a while. To my left was a room with shelves overflowing in books. I wanted a closer look, but we had to clear the house first. We walked down a hallway past a formal dining room and a den, both devoid of people and crawlers. An office on our right housed a desk and an honest-to-god typewriter, but no threats. Behind the desk chair, a table held a microphone and other equipment. We moved past the offices to a closed door with a letter taped to it. Daddy read it to himself and told me to stay put as he entered the room. The letter was in script and said simply, It's all yours. May God have mercy on us all. I peeked in the doorway and saw it was a large bedroom with a four-poster bed and a lump under the blankets. The smell of death hit me then and I stepped back, nauseous. Why the whole place didn't smell was a wonder. Daddy called out that it was safe and I stepped into the room holding my breath. I avoided looking at the bed and my eyes found the claw marks around the window. Deep gouges in the paint and sheetrock. Someone had turned, but they were no longer around if the open window was in communication. As I'm sure you know, crawlers get some of their intelligence back after a few weeks. The claw marks showed the transition from infected human to wild crawler to deadly hunter, like a coyote with thumbs. Daddy shut and locked the window. There were pill bottles on the nightstand and a nest in the closet. Whoever had turned might still be around. We cleared the kitchen at the back of the house, past the master bedroom, and found stairs to both the basement and the second floor. Upstairs were six bedrooms and a laundry room. A bathroom at both ends of the floor told me there had likely been a living crew, not unusual for a farm this large. There was no sign of children. We cleared the basement last, and Daddy found the fuse box. With a hopeful prayer, he flipped the main, and we had power. Even I knew we'd looked out. The owners had been doomsday preppers if the amount of dry goods in the basement was any indication. It looked like a Costco membership gone wild. I wanted to kneel down right there and thank God, and I'm not even a believer. 
Instead, we buried the man in the bed out front where large stones marked four other graves. At least he'd have some company. Daddy burnt the mattress and blankets from the bedroom and cleared out the nest of clothes and rags in the closet. I checked all the windows and doors before snooping through belongings. In the kitchen, I found a speaker and iPod charger. Digging out my long dead nano, I let music fill the house and nearly cried at how normal I felt for the first time in almost a year. Daddy must have felt the same way because he didn't criticize my choice of pop music. Daddy told me we'd spend a few days cleaning and taking inventory. The stores in the basement would hold us over a long past winter, and then we could start a garden. He had high hopes that we'd find some livestock wandering free and could bring them back to pasture. I agreed with Daddy, and he continued planning aloud. Searching through the office turned up a map of the county, and Daddy noted the little town of Birchville ten miles up the road. If it hadn't burnt down, there might be a pharmacy and I could get back on my meds. Maybe get control of my moods again. I didn't much like myself off my meds, apocalypse or not. I was easily irritated and took it out on Daddy. He promised we'd make a trip to town at some point and scavenge for supplies. The air had a chill to it this late in the season, and I was glad we had found a place to hunker down and be warm. I spent a couple days helping Daddy winterize the house and barns and cover up the ground well. A week after arriving at the last hurrah, Daddy started coughing. I didn't pay attention at first, but when the cough turned into a wet hacking, I insisted we take the truck into Birchville and hunt down antibiotics for what I guessed was pneumonia. But he shrugged me off, saying we had too much work to do before winter came to waste a day on what was only a cough. He continued to ignore my protests for another week as his condition worsened. After laying awake all night listening to him breathe with flooded lungs, I slipped from bed just before dawn and stole the truck keys, intent on going to Birchville myself. The road there was dark, and a canopy of endless leaves stopped the sunrise from lighting my way. The little bit of fog on the road only served to creep me out. I passed abandoned houses, some burnt near to the ground, and a couple billboards advertising dead businesses and churches. Without Jesus, you will rot in hell, one promised. Couldn't be any worse than where I was now, I thought. I passed over a small bridge, and the Welcome Home to Birchville sign flashed by. The town was small, with a gas station, library, and a blockbuster closed long before the apocalypse if the weathered sign was any indication. The grocery store had a pharmacy inside it and was missing part of its wall, ash and burnt wood visible from the road. Birchville had its share of people burning alive. I parked outside the grocery store and took a moment to watch the sunrise, before taking the coyote gun from the rack over the back window and climbing out the cab. The town was silent, other than a couple stray dogs rooting in some trash next door. The grocery store was unlocked, but that hadn't stopped someone from throwing a cinder block through the window and ransacking the place. Stuff was strewn across the floor, and the smell of rotten produce and meat hung in the air. I grabbed a cart from near the door and crossed the store, hoping to nab some first aid supplies, batteries, and all the tampons I could find. The pharmacy wasn't destroyed, but someone had definitely rooted through it, probably loading up on pain pills. Thankfully, the psych meds were untouched, and I found several months' worth of my pills and some trileptol, too, which would work when the other stuff ran out. The antibiotics were a little trickier. I only remembered the first syllable of the meds Ma had gotten a prescription for a few years back. Levo something or another. I ended up with two options with the prefix Levo and took both, unsure which was better. I took a look through the shelves for anything else and found some goodies like amoxicillin and morphine. I crammed everything into bags at the register, thanked the invisible cashier, and headed back to the truck. 
As I tossed my loot into the cab, something moved near the dumpsters. Bigger than a dog. I froze. It was a woman, small and scraggly. She watched me silent. But from this distance, I couldn't tell if she were a crawler or not, so I waved. When she didn't move, I climbed into the truck, locked the doors, and got the hell out of Dodge. I fully expected an ambush on the way back, but the road was just as deserted as it had been earlier. I relaxed a little as I bumped up the drive to the farmhouse and saw Daddy looking pissed on the porch. Damn, did I get an earful. I'll save you the trouble of repeating Daddy's words, but he stayed pissed until he died two weeks later. Chills and a wet hacking cough carrying him into the grave. I buried him next to the man from the bed so he'd have some company, and that's all I have to say about that. Frankie's telling me I can't end our first broadcast on such a shower note. No one will want to join us here. <laughs> Apparently all the sign language Frankie taught me was so they could sass me with it. Fine. Daddy used to tell me don't fear the wasteland. There's nothing scarier than you. Well, Daddy lied. Turned out there's plenty of things out there to be scared of, but if you're looking for people to be scared with, then hit Route 109 and follow the billboards we painted over to find us. The last hurrah is here. Just remember, no funny business. Don't Fear the Wasteland is a story-driven podcast by Joey Hall, chronicling Sheriff's Journey the Apocalypse, broadcast as a radio show from the last hurrah in Alabama. It's an oasis for survivors in the blasted remains of the old world, or Earth as we know it now. To learn more about the wasteland with Sheriff Spencer Days, check out don'tfearthewasteland.com and joeyhall.com. Thanks for listening.